0: Today's scripture reading comes from John 12, verses 1 through 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of a perfume. Can you smell it? But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say that because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came, not only because of him, but they also came to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, who were not happy, made plans to also kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, a great crowd came together for the festival when they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was there with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continue to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, they went out to meet him. But the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him.
1: I believe it was Thomas Edison who said that success is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. I would add to that 90% that much of the perspiration is the sweat of preparation. We're all preppers of some sort. Some are more extreme than others. In 2012, the National Geographic Channel released a reality series called Doomsday Preppers. They followed a group of people that were extreme preppers that stockpiled food and ammunition, honed their survival skills, buried bunkers in their backyard, It's actually become a lucrative business. If you have the means, you can build quite an extravagant bunker in your backyard. I I found these images of these two online. These are actually real underground bunkers, the one with the palm trees. Those are LED screens to make you think you're looking outside. Now, as nice as those are, If there is a world event that necessitates me living in a bunker underground, I just don't know that I want to be around for that at all. But we all prepare, right? Every one of us. Each morning we wake up and we have a ritual, a preparation ritual in which we get ready for the day. Or if you go on vacation, you prepare, right? You decide where you're going to go. You buy plane tickets, get a hotel, plan excursions. Even my wife and I go out to a new restaurant, we prepare. I go online, I look at the menu, make sure I like it, make sure that the menu meets all of her allergen needs. We prepare. I like to know what I'm getting into. One of the mantras that I live my life by is that if you sweat in preparation, you will not bleed in battle. Most of us are great At preparing for life. But what about preparing for death? I mean, death is certain. The last time I checked, the death rate for Americans hovers right around 100%. (laughs) Someone once said, the only thing we all have in common is death and taxes. And I'm like, not true. You don't have to pay your taxes. You can go to jail. The only thing that we have in common is death. And every one of us will experience it. The only thing that's uncertain is the time and the way. We don't like thinking about it, of course. Death doesn't typically come up as a conversation starter at dinner parties. We ignore it. Many of us fear it. We avoid it. And if we have to confront death through the loss of a loved one or a funeral, we want to get through it as quickly as possible but i wonder could it be that, that 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 attitude towards death is actually hindering us from living fully the nation of bhutan is located just north of india just south of china it's a small nation but it's also known as one of the happiest countries on earth The government even measures the happiness of its people through its gross national happiness measurement. (laughs) And it is said that one of the keys to happiness within the Bhutanese people is they think about death every day. Not just once a day. If you were to ask the average Bhutanese citizen, they would tell you they think about death five times a day. Because thinking about death five times a day helps you to live fully and happier. Now, the the Bible itself nudges us in this direction, sometimes not so subtly, to think about death, to appreciate it, to plan for it, and not just funeral arrangements and living wills, but with our heart. See, John chapter 12 is the story of preparation for a death. Now this weekend is Palm Sunday weekend in which we celebrate the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. Maybe we hear the shouts of Hosanna. We feel the waving of the palm friends, the palm branches. But I want to expand on that story a little bit, looking not only at the event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, but what happens right before and right after that event. Because the season of Lent, which we're in right now, week six, is a season of preparation, preparing our hearts for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I believe that thinking about how Jesus was prepared for his death might lead us to a better life, a more full life. So let's enter the story together for just a moment. Tara just read uh, the verses for today. John chapter 12 begins with a party. Jesus is the guest of honor they're there to celebrate him. Uh, it's most likely being thrown because of the event that happens one chapter prior in John chapter eleven. So, see, in John Chapter eleven, there's a man named Lazarus who's become sick, so sick in fact that he's about to die. So his sisters Mary and Martha, who are friends with Jesus, send word to him Jesus, the one that you love, Lazarus, is sick. So sick in fact that he's about to die. And the scriptures say that Jesus received that news and then he waited three days, which is a bit odd if you think about it at its surface level, because if you find out someone that you care about is so sick that they might die, what would you do? You'd probably drop everything if you're a decent human being, right? And go and be with that person. But Jesus waits three days. And after the three days has passed, Jesus says to his disciples, come on guys, we need to go. And wake up our friend Lazarus because he's fallen asleep. See, Jesus waited three days because he was about to display the power of God. He arrives and Mary and Martha are there. They're weeping and crying. And there's the Jesus, where were you? If you would have been here. You ever had one of those moments? Jesus, where were you? And Jesus says, take me to where you've buried him. And he goes... And he says to them, roll away the stone. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, wait a minute. He's been in there three days. You know what a body smells like after three days? Roll away the stone. And so they do. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And what we experience is a resurrection from the dead. And I can promise you this. If you have the ability to raise somebody from the dead, people are going to talk right? Everyone's going to be there. Wolf Blitzer, Tucker Carl, they're all going to be there if you can raise someone from the dead. So this party is being thrown in Jesus' honor because of the miracle he worked with Lazarus. And Lazarus is there. He's sitting at the table. He's probably got the t-shirt. I died and lived to tell about it. It was an amazing event, really, in this moment. But then something happens. The story shifts suddenly and unexpectedly because Mary, the sister of Lazarus, gets down on her hands and knees and pours extremely expensive oil on the feet of Jesus, lets down her hair and wipes the excess with it, and the atmosphere changes. The room goes silent. This event in Jesus' culture would have been seen as scandalous. For a woman to let down her hair in public was unheard of. If the woman was married, it was considered grounds for divorce to let down your hair in front of anyone besides your husband. And for a woman to touch the feet of a man in Jesus' culture was, well, that was, the headlines would have been filled with scandal. But Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is doing what she's doing, because she's preparing Jesus for his death. Now, she likely doesn't know what it is that she's doing because the passage has a bit of a prophetic tone to it, but when Mary gets down on her hands and knees and pours out that jar of perfumed oil, she offers a selfless gift, extravagant worship, and a lavish overflow of her love. I mean, the gift was selfless. We come back to verse 3 of chapter 12, and we read that Mary took about a pint of pure nard, which was an expensive perfume. Now, nard comes from the spike nard plant, which grows in northern India. It grows at the foot of the Himalayan mountains, and it came with an appalling cost. One year's wage. Now imagine, think about what you make in a year, and then spend that on a pint of anything. And that's an expensive purchase. That pint of oil probably represented all that Mary had. That was her security, her investment, her 401k. Everything was contained in that simple vial. And Judas is there and Judas rebukes her and says, Why did you do that? Like, There's some misguided generosity here. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now, I read this and I'm like, come on, this is Judas, like that Judas, the Judas. The one that's going to, a few pages later, sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, there's a bit of hidden hypocrisy here. The the scriptures say that Judas used to keep the money bag for Jesus and his disciples, and he would skim a little bit off the top for things he liked. I mean, it's that Judas. But before we go and judge Judas, I think if we're all honest, each one of us has a bit of hidden hypocrisy in there, don't we? I was at a hotel last week. My wife and I were there because a flight of ours got canceled. And we checked into this hotel really late. It was like two in the morning. I was tired and frustrated. You ever ever have one of those moments? Just tired and frustrated. Oh. So we check in, and they ask for my driver's license, which I give them, and that was it. Checked us in, gave us the key, went out to our room, didn't think much about it. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. They didn't ask for my credit card, because they always ask for your credit card for incidentals, right? But they didn't. Like, whatever. Who cares? The next morning, I got up, went downstairs to buy breakfast at the hotel restaurant, ordered the food, and the bill came. And, you know, there's a place where you put your room number, and then you sign it, and they charge it to your room. And I signed it, and I thought, wait a minute. They didn't take my credit card, and I booked this through a third party, so who's, like, who actually pays for that? I'm like, that's their problem, not mine. (laughs) I walked out of the restaurant, I got halfway down the hall, and I was arrested with conviction. You ever have one of those moments where you were arrested with conviction? And what I heard was, oh Mike, you tell people publicly that you're honest and generous. That seems a bit selfish. That move lacks a little bit of integrity. Fine. So I went back to the desk and said, hey, you know, I, they never took my card. I actually still need to pay for this food. And the lady at the desk said, oh, thank you, sir, for being so honest. And I'm like, if you only knew, man. i, I just. <laughs> We all have hidden hypocrisy, and we can all act selfishly. Which is interesting, because we're actually attracted to selflessness. Aren't we? I mean, nobody says, I, I sure hope all my friends are selfish. <laughs> I hope my husband or wife is completely selfish. I mean, nobody says that. We, we're attracted to selflessness. It is a value of the kingdom of God. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writes, don't be selfish rather in humility. Think of others as better than yourself. And so in this moment, in this selfless moment that Mary expresses to Jesus, Jesus silences Judas and says, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor, but you will not always have me. Now, in this moment, Jesus is not minimizing care for the poor. He's actually quoting an Old Testament passage from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, which says, There will always be poor people on the land, therefore I command you, be open-handed. I mean, care for the poor is, is a constant expectation amongst followers of Christ. But in this moment, see, something special was happening here. Something sacred was, was happening here. In this moment of selflessness, Mary was preparing Jesus for something bigger. See, selflessness is a embodiment of the way of Jesus. So Mary approaches Jesus with humility and a bit of courage. She moves past the death stairs of Judas and offers Jesus a respectful and generous gift. It's now seen as an extravagant act of worship. Verse 3, we read that she poured it, all of it, on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. I've come to believe that this incident is an extravagant act of worship. Mary worshiped and never uttered a word. Which begs the question, what does it mean then to worship? We have a very narrow and limited view of that word. Some of us reduce it to the singing time during church. And then we reduce it even more narrow because like we say, well, that song was worshipful. That song was not like who decides? And then we might look at someone in the sanctuary who's worshiping God, maybe their hands are raised, tears flowing down their face, and we say, Wow, they're really worshiping God. And someone else is a bit more stoic and just standing like this. And we're like, well, they're not really worshiping God. Like, but how do you, who who decides that? Who gets to be the judge of that? I think it's a misnomer. Because all of life can become an act of worship if we allow it. I grew up in a tradition that uh, each Easter season we gave up something for Lent. So this year as we, we came into Lent, I thought, you know, I kinda wanna prepare my heart in a different way this year uh, as I get ready for the resurrection. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something for Lent that's out of the ordinary. So I decided that I'm going to give up all desserts. I, I, and if you know, if some of you Mona, you know me. I, that's, I mean like cake, sugar, can't, all of it, can't, M&Ms, everything for 40 days. And I've actually done pretty good. I had a few moments of weakness, don't judge me. But I, but for 40 days, I basically had no, no dessert. And in the evening, especially in the evening when the cravings hit, because, oh, do they hit? You ever try to get, stop eating sugar? See, my posture was a posture of worship. I'm going to allow my craving for God to be greater than my craving for sugar and redirect my attention towards him. So every time I long for chocolate, my soul longs more for God. And all of life, every day, during a meal became worship. I would argue that even the act of breathing can be worship. In Judaism, it is forbidden to speak or write the name of God. And so as a result, when God's name is written in Judaism, the name Yahweh is not written out. There's just four letters that represent God's name, Y-H-W-H. Those four letters are referred to as the sacred tetragrammaton. Most people say that you really can't pronounce that name. You actually have to breathe it because the pronunciation of Y-H-W-H is more so if we believe that, then every breath becomes a prayer and every action a form of worship. So what then does all of life look like when we do it unto the Lord? We go to our job in the morning, even if we hate it. But if we do it unto him, then it becomes worship. Or if you've got kids and you change diapers each day, could it be that changing diapers is a way to worship God? Or cleaning the kitchen? or mowing the lawn. See, what, what Mary did for Jesus in this extravagant form of worship is what's known as anointing. In the Bible, there are a couple of words that are translated anointing. The first word is used when oil is poured on the head of a king as he's crowned to affirm his kingship. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used for Mary's act is a word that's much more closely associated with an act of intimacy and an act of worship. And because it was an act of intimacy, what, what you experience here in the story is Mary's lavish overflow of love, and it was lavish. We read in verse three that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Like when you can fill a house with a scent, that's a lavish outpouring. Right there, there is something about the sense of smell that has the ability to trigger memories. Right, some smells please, other smells repulse. There, there are smells that we love. Right, like the smell of freshly baked anything. That's a great smell. I like the smell of freshly cut grass. Then there are some weird smells that, for whatever reason, our olfactory system likes that it shouldn't like, right? Like, for instance, I'm going to let you in. This is church. We're all friends, right? When I'm outside, and it's got to be outside, for some reason, some bizarre reason, I like like the smell of secondhand smoke, which is weird because I've never smoked a day in my life. I think it's hereditary because my mom likes it too, which is so weird because it's so bad to breathe that in, but I like it. Then there are some smells that repulse, right? When my wife was pregnant with Ryan, our second child, the smell of brewing coffee nauseated her, which is a huge problem in my house. Because on uh, during the week I can have coffee at work, but on Friday, my day off, I I would brew coffee and it turned into this thing. So I thought the solution was very simple. I just took my coffee pot outside in the backyard plugged it in, and I started brewing coffee, and like two minutes later, I hear from the upstairs bedroom, are you brewing coffee? Come on, man, you're upstairs, I'm outside. So I Took my four-year-old daughter that day, put her in the stroller. We walked over to the grocery store, which had a Starbucks in it. I got coffee. She got a donut. Everybody was happy. And it turned into like this six-year thing that she called Donut Day, so I guess it had a happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) Mary poured out so much that it filled the house. This wasn't a dab. She poured out everything that she had as a lavish lavish expression of love. I think it's okay sometimes to lavishly express yourself to those that you care deeply about. And and the fragrance of that moment extended far beyond the event. Have you ever had a smell attached to you? And people knew exactly what you were doing because of the smell on you. Like I, I used to be a fry cook in a cafeteria, and I would leave work, and unless I took a shower, you could smell me. You knew I was around Greece because it just it oozed out of me. See, when Jesus walked away from the party that day, the scent of nard went with him. The scent of Mary's selflessness, the scent of her extravagant worship, the scent of her lavish love. But that wasn't the only scent that was on Jesus. Because the next day, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there was also the scent of death on him. Because see, Jesus rode into Jerusalem for one purpose. He rode into Jerusalem to die. And Jesus welcomed death because he knew that it was through death that life was actually born. Because you cannot have resurrection without a crucifixion, without a without a death. And you really can't consider the Christian story without thinking about the end. So I wonder what what does this story mean to you? How do you enter into it? Because I think for us there's two deaths we need to consider. The first is our own death, the death of our body. I've come to believe that thinking about my own death can become an act of worship, a spiritual practice. And so for the last few years, I've spent several moments each day thinking about death. Not in a morbid way, but in a refreshing way. I even have an app on my phone. It's got an ironic name. It's called We Croak. That's the name of it. And five times a day, it sends me a notification with a quote about death from some famous person. And as I've done that as a spiritual practice, what's been interesting is I've noticed things I might not necessarily notice. It's helped me to slow down and appreciate the moment. And it has given me a new and profound expectation of eternity. Because I know that death is not the end, it's simply a door into this next life. It's helped me to live a bit more selflessly. It's made my worship a bit more extravagant. And it helps me to lavish love on others more profoundly. But there's a second a second death. And that's a death that happens now, right now, to all of us. It's a death that the scripture asks of us. Book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, the apostle Paul writes, For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ. That passage speaking of a of a death to those things that hang us up, a death to certain attitudes, a death to certain addictions, a death to overinflated opinions, a death to selfishness. Because see, death really is the only way to eternal life. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come back. This week, as we consider the story of Jesus' preparation, preparation for his death, might we take some time over the next few days as we anticipate Easter to think about our own death? Because in the end, it doesn't stop with the grave. Because when you think about death, you're, as a follower of Christ, forced to think about eternal life. And in some ways, that's what Easter's all about. So now, God, we uh, we just take a moment to think about this story. There's so much happening in this story. I know we probably came here today, not thinking we were going to hear some guy talk about dying. How depressing! The truth is, that's why you rode into Jerusalem. And that's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about the beginning of a journey to the cross. The symbol of our faith, in many ways, is the symbol of death. But we know from the Easter story that it does not stop there, that it ends in eternal life. And so, God, as we think about our own end, maybe be reminded that it really is a new beginning. And we find grace and peace in that. Amen.